This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. It's through Point Click Care's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Point Click Care. When residents come to our home, we ask them, you know, what was your career? What were your interests in life? And based on that, we match you up with things to do in the home. If you're, if you were a librarian, you're going to work with our library. If you were a plumber, you're going to work with our maintenance staff to talk to them about things that you know about maintenance. That's giving those residents a chance to exert some power of their own in social relationships and give something back that makes them feel valued. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I'm also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John Hurdies of the School of Public Health Sciences at the University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. John is a renowned researcher and educator who brings nearly 40 years of experience and perspective in geriatric assessment, mental health care, and health care and service delivery. John's current areas of research interest include home care, long-term care, palliative care, and mental health. Professor Hurdies has a depth of research and data, expertise and experience that inform his understanding as to what's happening in seniors care today, not only in Ontario, Canada, but around the world. In our discussion, John speaks to the changes he's seen over the decades, including through his own personal experiences, and he offers some very thoughtful advice on what we could be doing differently as a society to support our aging population. John, welcome to our podcast, Coming of Age. We've had some offline discussions, off-pod discussions about your leadership and your work in research in supporting seniors, uh, your work with the landmark work with the Interi. And I'm wondering if, if perhaps we could start off with you speaking to what you're seeing in terms of who are the residents in long-term care? What are their needs? And, and are you seeing a shift? What's the same, what's different, and what we need to be thinking of as we think about the future. Okay, well, thanks, Donna, for having me. It's been great to collaborate with you and your colleagues over the many years we've worked together in different contexts. And, well, I guess the context to, to, to start off with a response for this is the time frame that I'm looking at this uh, under. Um, I'll date myself by saying I'm approaching 40 years of, of research in this space, going back to when I was a graduate student. There's been a dramatic shift, I think, in terms of uh, who's in long-term care, what the role of long-term care is, and what the challenges are that the sector is facing. The main thing I was I would say is that the sector is now serving a much more complex population in terms of their physical health needs, their cognitive needs, mental health concerns, and medical challenges than we would have seen when I started doing this work in the 1980s. 
say, a population with much more complex and heavy care needs than uh, seen previously. That's not taking into account all those sort of social changes that are happening in our society that may have also got, may, may also have important implications for the long-term future of the sector. Could you speak a bit about those social implications? Well, one of the interesting challenges that, that we'll have is that in the home care sector, um, most of the care that, that is provided to residents or clients in home care comes from family members. So as we see changing social relationships, there may not be as many family resources in the future to provide care in the community based on current models of home care. And so that may mean that in long-term care of the future, we may be dealing with yet another kind of clientele as our society changes that affects the ability of people to get care in community settings. It's also a reason why I would approach with great caution the idea that there's massive numbers of people in long-term care today that could be cared for in the community. I, I don't believe that that is a correct statement. We all too often are hearing that uh, a large percentage of individuals who are in long-term care don't need to be there and that uh, we should be taking people out of long-term care, bring your loved ones home, and uh, we all need to be able to age in place. So how do you respond to those individuals who, who are saying that as you think about the evolution of your data? Well, there's no question that most people want to be able to live their lives uh, independently in the community as, as long as possible. But that's not always feasible, depending on the kind of care arrangements we have and the, and the needs we have. When I was a graduate student first looking into long-term care, the average length of stay in long-term care was well over four years. It's now well under two years, and for many folks, uh, shorter than that. I remember seeing long-term care homes where they had dedicated parts of their parking lot for residents to park their cars. There's not a lot of residents in long-term care today who can drive their, their car. I also remember as a graduate student that some long-term care homes had an activity program where they would have residents mow their lawn. That's not feasible anymore. So long-term care in the past might have been a part of it um, really along the lines of what we today see as supportive housing environments, some of the lighter parts of, of retirement homes, nothing like what it is today where residents have much more severe physical impairment, cognitive impairment, more complex um, medical needs um, than we saw in the past. A recent uh, shared health priority indicator released by Kaihai looked at the percentage of residents in long-term care who could have been cared for in home care settings. And prior to the pandemic, that number was one in nine for the country or around 11%. And then when you break it down a bit further, what you see is that most of those folks are a major predictor of somebody being in long-term care that could have been cared for in the community was that they live in rural settings where there's fewer resources available in the community or that they live alone because there's not family members there to provide that three-quarters of care that comes for most home care clients. So the the folks that are there now are there because of social geographic re, uh, reasons that are not easily uh, remedied. The next part of this is the rates of caregiver distress we see in uh, community settings. Prior to the pandemic, the rates of caregiver distress in home care were approaching 40% of home care clients on, on a national basis. And that's before the pandemic when 
services got more constrained, health concerns became magnified. So I'm actually expecting the rates of caregiver distress in the community to be greater now. We vastly underfund the home care system. So the notion that we can take residents who are currently receiving long-term care um, uh, services and support those residents with a couple of hours per week of home care is fanciful thinking in, in my mind. What our objective should be is to resource home care appropriately to keep people independent in the community as long as possible and enhance the quality of care and the quality of life in long-term care settings to meet the needs of of residents and, and meet people's expectations of the kind of care they should be getting. Those are some really great points. And, you know, when we think about uh, the Canadian Institute of Health Information and, and the leadership that they've been providing in terms of those data points, things have really shifted over the last three years. We know today we have close to 40,000 people on a wait list in Ontario for long-term care. 3,000 of those are on a crisis community wait list. So it will be interesting to see what your data will bear out even two years from now. I'd love your thoughts on that as we think about how are we going to care for our aging population, to your point, in those more rural and remote communities as well, where we know home care has not been as effective. And we know that so many of the family caregivers are no longer living in their communities with their family members. Yeah, so so geographic mobility of, of older adults and their families is yet another big, great limiter in all this. My my experience with both my parents when, when they were at the stage that they were receiving uh, home-based care is that they both lived two and a half hours away from our home, uh, an hour and a half away from my oldest brother. And, and it was because they were retiring to the community that they loved in Grand Bend, just like folks probably in, in Collingwood, many have retired there. And and the reality is that living two and a half hours away from my dad when he was on his own meant that I couldn't come by and provide an hour of personal support uh, a day. So he needed more home care um, than the average home care client who ha- is living with a spouse or living with with, uh, with a child. And Home care is just spread too thin. We need to add many more resources into that sector. We need to think about some alternative models of housing arrangements that might uh, work uh, for older adults and persons with with disabilities that don't have immediate access to to, uh, family members, that maybe there's alternative ways to uh, support them in the community. I think we need to expand the whole continuum to sort of think about more alternative models at, at different stages. But we also need to resource it appropriately. We can't just you know, set up a setting and say magically it's going to take care of itself with with little to no uh, funding. We need to be sure that we're matching resources in those settings to the needs of, of people receiving the, uh, those services. And to that point, John, this is a global crisis at, at a pivotal moment as we look at the, the baby boomers in the Western countries uh, coming of age. Has anybody got this figured out? Well, I, I wish I could say there's a Shangri-La and that I've been there, but I, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, a huge amount of the research we do is on long-term care and, and home care. And the the real lesson that we've learned from all this international work um, is no place is perfect. 
all countries have some things they do well and other uh, things that they don't do quite as well. And uh, we actually can learn things from, from other jurisdictions. But, you know, sometimes Canadians have, have the sense that, you know, if we just look to this region, say the, the Nordic countries, that all truth will be revealed and, and we'll get magic answers about how to fix long-term care and it'll all be great. Well, folks in those countries have their struggles uh, as well and their, their challenges uh, that they're facing. A really important mistake that we make in health services research and health and aging is that we assume that if we visit a place and take a look around, that we'll understand what's happening and we can take those lessons directly back um, to apply to Canada. And so in Canada, when it comes to home care and long-term care, we actually serve a heavier population in both settings than we see in Nordic countries. So when I started my career, the very first thing I looked at was restraint use in long-term care. And when we did our first study in Toronto hospitals in the, the mid-1990s, we found there was a rate of around 45% of residents were, or complex continuing care patients who were being restrained on a daily basis. And everybody in Canada thought, yeah, that's that's normal. But with the intra data that we had from different countries, we saw the rates were much lower, including in the United States, where at the time the rate was 15%, so a third of the rate of the Canadian experience. We're now at a national rate that's below 5%. So that's been a remarkable change in the sector in terms of that one dimension of quality. Um, today, there's a new story out about uh, antipsychotic use in long-term care. We've actually made dramatic improvements in antipsychotic use in, in long-term care and in uh, Ontario over the last five to eight years because we've had the evidence to drive that change. So one of the exciting things that we've been able to do is to put together evidence to target efforts to improve quality and having comparative information with a variety of, of uh, jurisdictions helps us to see where we could do better and, and where we're, we're doing reasonably well. Well, that's exciting to be able to use comparable data to look at us within that that global context and compare apples with apples. Unfortunately, we don't hear those stories about quality care and long-term care. Unfortunately, notwithstanding the fact that certainly the research we've done, which is more qualitative research, is that the people who have the experience with long-term care find it to be good. If we can anchor ourselves in the data and in those measures, then that should lead to far better outcomes and far better living and care experiences in that care environment. There's no question that there's variations in experience from some very poor experiences to some very good experiences. And what we want to do is shift the distribution so there's a lot more of the good experiences and and none of the the very poor experiences. That's that's the challenge that that we we face and that I, I think we're we're making progress uh, in, in that regard. But there, there's a whole series of moving targets. So we're, we're trying to improve care with the same level of funding that's there today as we may have had with a lighter care uh, population. There, there's a whole bunch of, of variables that are moving at the same time that, that make the, this uh, a real uh, challenge. Um, but at least we're in the country now in a place where we're in a better place in terms of evidence to understand what's happening in the sector and who's uh, succeeding. So one of the most exciting things that I've had the opportunity to be involved in in the last five years is something called the Seniors Quality Leap Initiative, or SQLI. 
It's a consortium of 14 long-term care organizations in Canada and the United States, and we've just been joined by um, an organization from Cape Town, South Africa. And what we do is we get together on a regular basis and benchmark the quality of care that we're provided with scientifically validated, robust, risk-adjusted clinical quality indicators to evaluate the care being provided in the 64 long-term care homes that are under those 14 organizations. And we also benchmark the quality of life of residents using a standardized quality of life survey that, that residents can report on. And then we work together to say, okay, what are we going to try to improve on? What are the areas that are priorities? Who here has done a great job that we can all learn from? And what was it about that, that success that could be translated to um, other jurisdictions? You know, a couple things that we learned from it is, well, this isn't easy. Changing quality isn't something you just snap your fingers and there magically you've, you've got it all right. It takes effort. Um, but having... Others to work with, you know, one of the things that's nice is nice to commiserate when it doesn't work, uh, your, your dearly held idea. But also, sometimes you can save some effort to learn if something didn't work for somebody else, why would I repeat that myself? And maybe there's another venue that, that we can improve on. Um, and also, we learned that, you know, you can improve quality of care in some dimensions, but if you don't improve quality of life at the same time, you're not quite fully there in terms of what you want to achieve. What residents in long-term care deserve is both. They deserve a better quality of life and they deserve better quality clinical care at the same time. That's that's the target we got to aim for. As I've said on uh, on this podcast today in Ontario, we have uh, close to 40,000 people on our wait list for long-term care. For so many of them, there is no path to another care setting and, and we really do need to do better and no one should be living in a hospital. I love your view on on data and um, how that can inform a, a different reality and and actually necessitates a different reality as as we think of uh, the fact that the population over eighty five is going to double in the next fifteen years in Ontario. We are so not ready. <laughs> Well, and it's not just the 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 change in the percentage. It's over. It's also the overall change of the size of the population. You know, I I recently heard um, that the the plan is to have a, an additional five million people or something in that range in the population of Ontario over the next coming decades. Just that change alone, without population aging alone, will mean there's just that larger volume of of older adults uh, with, with needs, even if the population was not getting getting older. I was inspired to do some analyses um, based on my mom's experience before she uh, she passed away several years ago, where she was um, one of those patients who was struggling in the, um, in the community where she would have an acute episode and things would go bad, and then uh, she would go back home and, and do okay, and then something else would happen. And there was a point at which we had to have a, um, a discussion about whether long-term care made sense for her or not. And she was not excited about the idea, like none of us are in terms of, of the end of, of our, our lives. But we sort of came to this agreement to say, okay, well, let's go into a long-term care home, get some restorative care in place, some good quality rehabilitative uh, uh, interventions and see if we can make a difference to, to improve uh, her functioning. So uh, she agreed that, yeah, she would give this a try and then we would revisit whether she needed to be there after uh, uh, 90 days. 
so she went into a small family-owned uh, home, nothing remarkable, in southern Ontario in a r- small uh, rural town. And when we brought her there, uh, she needed assistance to, to get in, into the home. And she got good quality of care. She got some exercise programs uh, there. When I picked her up for a Christmas dinner at the end of the uh, roughly uh, 80-day period that we had uh, talked about, we went out for dinner. I brought her back to the home, and she walked up the stairs independently and asked me why it was taking me so long to come back in. And she got discharged back home and spent the last year of her life at home. It's because she, just for a short stint, got really good interventions to help her regain some function that she just wasn't getting when she was cycling in and out of the hospital system. We published a paper called One Way Out? Question mark, And that is, you know, is there only one way out of a long-term care? Is the only path out of long-term care the end of, of your life? And what we found is that in those first 90 days, there's a remarkable degree of change that happens in long-term care. There's a bunch of people who get better in terms of their health. There's a lot of people who get worse. There are people who die, who go to hospital and go home. Those first 90 days, there's a tremendous amount of change that happens. What that says to me is that we need to think about managing care at that transition very carefully. There are opportunities for people to improve, and if the people do improve, we need to find ways to get them back into the community. So family members should not be selling the home as soon as a a relative moves into long-term care. We need to keep options open and and real change is possible. And if we also reimagine part of long-term care, To have a more rehabilitative focus, we may find there are some folks that would get quality care for a short period of time, 90 or 180 days, could go back to the community. At the same time, we need to improve palliative services in long-term care for folks who will die in long-term care so they get good quality palliative care at the end of life. And, and thank you for sharing your own personal experience because that matters. And it's so exciting to see how your personal experience fe- feeds the researchers' re- curiosity. You know, as we think about what long-term care is today, we are seeing new transition programs e- emerging. And that, and that excites me as uh, we start to, to look at different models and, and reconsider how could we embed more respite beds or convalescent beds and uh, normalize and also add in day, day programming and ambulatory supports? We've had discussions with government around how do we not lose some of the community care supports? So when you move into long-term care, you often lose any community care services that you would have had uh, if you'd been living at home. How do we not lose those? To your point, uh, and, and bring some of those other um, sort of rehab therapies and other, other supports into the long-term care home to support the individuals uh, as opposed to thinking that this is a box in long-term care and this is what we have and this is what you're going to get. Yeah. Well, and, and it's really about, in, in the end, improving life in as many domains uh, as we can, making sure that people's physical health improves, their ability to function improves uh, as much as it can, that their psychosocial well-being uh, is addressed. We want to move multiple targets, and so we need to measure those targets and intervene to, to make a difference um, in, in as many of those areas as possible. And it takes a, a systems-based approach, and some of it is part that comes from the, the, the healthcare system, from funded resources and some of it is, is from community involvement um, one of the most 
sobering studies I, I did was very early on in my career, before I got involved in the Interi Group internationally, I was interested in the, the nature of social relationships that folks in, in long-term care had. And I sort of had had the sense that, you know, we have we have ties with immediate family members and we have ties with, with, with community uh, members. And what was striking to me in that uh, study was that if a resident has a spouse, the spouse continues to visit regularly. It's usually daily or weekly. If the resident has a child, the child tends to visit regularly, either weekly or monthly. But you didn't see a lot of other visitors beyond those immediate family members. I was surprised because I didn't see members from, say, uh, religious communities come in to visit, even though you know there are outreach programs that way. I didn't see neighbors or friends come in. Those ties tended to be severed um, by that admission to long-term care. So how can we fix that? That you know, I don't, I don't need a publicly funded home care program to bring friends and neighbors in to visit. What can we do that makes that setting attractive to maintain those uh, social relationships? And how can we deal with the the various voluntary associations, whether they're formal religious organizations or others that people have been lifetime members of to keep them engaged um, and, and part of people's lives once they're in those settings? It's, it's a big challenge, um, uh, but I, I was sort of struck by that. And that, that's something I think we can we can address to try to improve people's sense of engagement in, in the community. And some of these programs that you've mentioned, I think, are interesting in how they're trying to do that. The, the long-term care home I, I visited, we were talking about some, not all the volunteers have come back after the pandemic. And I was asking, how can we mobilize some of those faith-based organizations, school students differently, uh, social service clubs, legions, uh, the Lions Club, and do a call to arms. Uh, you, you commented at the beginning of our interview about the, the level of caregiver distress. And we're seeing that only increase as uh, individuals who are waiting for care at home and not getting access either to primary care to their family. They may not have a family physician in their local community. They're on a wait list for long-term care. To your point, they're, they're likely in and out of hospital having acute, acute episodes and what they're experiencing is not sustainable. And so how do we mobilize? What is our opportunity in my view to mobilize communities today, recognizing that the pressure on family caregivers is only going to increase in the absence of a more robust systemic approach that should include more of these social services organizations and volunteerism, but also in the absence of our ability to build a workforce in real time. I was uh, speaking the other day to someone about it, one of our homes that was very hard hit in the first wave of the pandemic in Ontario, devastating losses of life in a very, very small community. We don't hear about that home today. The community has rallied around it, the community college, the restaurants, the, the local businesses, uh, the social service organizations, and, and it, it, it really has been hugged. How do we foster more of that, but also foster a better understanding that that this is about a collective responsibility for supporting an aging population, for supporting the people who built our communities, and not look at it as at hospitals versus long-term care versus home and community care versus primary care. 
unfortunately, given the demographics, it's it's not going to be an either or at all. It's going to have to be all of the above, but all of the above in a very different way. So from the healthcare side of things, we're all part of a system and we have to function as a system and realize that if we make a mistake in one part of the system, it's going to carry through to, to other parts of it. And you know, I, I'd say I see progress in that regard over the course of my career, but it's still not quite there. So, you know, we don't share information as readily as when people make transitions. There's kind of a handoff mentality rather than continuity of care as people go from one setting to another. So there's more to do around that that system-based um, uh, uh, approach for sure. Uh, back on the community side of things, I, it would be important, I think, if we could find a way to make the transition from long-term care homes being islands in a community to being a part of the community that people come to visit and do things in. You know, the idea of, of having child care arrangements in long-term care is certainly a great idea of how to bring younger people in. Are there other things that we can do that it brings the community into long-term care? And are there things that we can think of that long-term care home residents could do to give back to the community? You know, we help our neighbor, our neighbor helps us. We help a family member, the family member helps us. In long-term care, it's often a one-direction relationship that they're recipients of care, but nobody's asking them for their uh, advice or insights in, in a, into things. And we found this home in the Senior Quality Leap Initiative where 70% of residents say that somebody asked them for help or advice. So we asked the home, tell us what's going on here. They said, well, when residents come to our home, we ask them, you know, what was your career? What were your interests in life? And based on that, we match you up with things to do in the home. If you're if you were a librarian, you're going to work with our library. If you were a plumber, you're going to work with our maintenance staff to talk to them about things that you know about maintenance. So what they did is they purposely sought out what are some of the assets and resources the residents had and matched them up with others who could benefit from that. That's giving those residents a chance to exert some power of their own in social relationships and give something back that makes them feel valued. Simple changes like that don't need a lot of money, but are just slightly different ways of thinking. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I, I have to tell you, I'm really inspired. Uh, I am deeply grateful for, for this opportunity to have you share your, the wisdom of your research, but also your personal experience and advice. And I'm really hopeful because it's conversations like these and, and leadership from individuals like you and, and um, data that are really going to, to help us change the world. Thank you so much for all that you do. Let's continue the conversation. Well, thank you for, for having me. I, I, I know we share the same objective for making things um, uh, better for folks in long-term care and beyond there. So uh, delighted to have other opportunities to chat. In today's discussion, Professor Hurdies and I covered a lot of important ground. I was particularly struck by John's professional and personal insights into the changes in society that are affecting our seniors, as well as the thoughts he shared on the changes that are needed to ensure seniors are better supported. It's ultimately about taking collective responsibility across the health system, and throughout society for supporting our aging population and for reimagining how and who provides those supports. Thank you for listening. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. Point Click Care is a leading healthcare technology platform 
enabling meaningful collaboration and access to real-time insights at any stage of a patient's healthcare journey. PointClick Care's single platform spans the care continuum, fostering proactive, holistic decision-making and improved outcomes for all. Over 25,000 long-term post-acute care providers in over 1,600 hospitals use PointClick Care today. For more information on PointClick Care software solutions, visit pointclickcare.com. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.